God bless you. If you love the Lord Jesus, can you give God some praise in this place? Come on, if you love Jesus, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His name is worthy to be praised. Listen, there is a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, and I know that it is the spirit of the Lord. There is a sweet expression on each face, and I know that you feel the presence of the Lord as well, and I just believe that God is going to do something amazing in this house on tonight. I do bring you greetings from my senior pastor, Reverend Rich Nathan, that is the pastor of Vineyard Columbus, and he sends his love to Trent Vineyard, and would you do me a favor, and let's give God praise for the pastors of this house, uh, Brother John and Sister Debbie White, God bless you. I certainly appreciate you. just done an ama just amazing leaders and they along with the staff has just rolled out the plush red carpet of Christian hospitality and I'm just so encouraged by having them here on today. I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the presence of what I who I believe to be um, the founders of the Vineyard UK um, and Ireland movement in the persons of um, Pastor John and Pastor Eleanor Mumford. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here on tonight. God bless you. God bless you, and I want to let you all know just in starting that I'm a little bit intentional in having you clapping because I come from a tradition um, that believes in people talking back to you when you're preaching. <laughs> Amen. I know I'm in Great Britain, but let me share something with you. I will not become arrested with anxiety if you want to say amen, amen. Uh, nor will I become beset with gloom if you want to say glory. glory, and my soul will not become hostile if you want to say hallelujah. Because the Bible says that everything that hath breath, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. And just in case you all get a little bit quiet on me in the midst of the sermon, I did bring along a little bit of backup. I want to introduce you to uh, my wife, Lady Kimberly Montgomery, if you would just stand for a moment. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Pastor John Mumford asked me earlier today over dinner, do, I, do we in America have fudge? And I just let you know, brother, I know about fudge. I mean, that's the hot fudge on my Sunday and the chocolate in my cake right there in Lady Kimberly Montgomery. And so I'm certainly <laughs> privileged to have her here on today. How many of you all came to hear a word from the Lord on tonight? Yes. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Would you meet me over in 1 Samuel, the 10th chapter? 1 Samuel, the 10th chapter, when we want to begin at verse 17. 1 Samuel, the 10th chapter, verse 17. There you will read some words that read on this wise. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt. And I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all of your disasters and calamities. And you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Verse 20, when Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin clan by clan and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come out here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. I want to put a tag on this text tonight, 
leave your baggage behind. Leave your baggage behind. Would you pray with me? Lord, I would pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart are acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are my strength and my redeemer. I thank you, Lord, for this moment and confess before all these people I belong to you and I can do nothing without you. So hide me now behind your cross. Let none of me be seen but all of Christ exalted. If you choose to save anybody, redeem anybody, reclaim anybody, renew anybody, I will not take any credit for it, but I will give you all glory, you all honor, and you all praise. In the righteous, ruling, and rich name of Jesus, we pray with every heart say, amen. In February of 1994, a group of executives founded a company called Frontier Airlines. Frontier is an ultra low-cost aircraft carrier that operates now in 54, or I should say it has 54 different destinations in the United States, and it has up to five different international destinations. It's fair to say that Frontier has been somewhat successful over the years, but recently, much to their shock and chagrin, they suffered a colossal embarrassment. The embarrassment occurred at their headquarters, or shall I say their major hub, in a place called Denver, Colorado. In fact, many newspapers in the United States called it the Denver debacle. They called it a debacle, my friends, because dozens of planes ended up being grounded because of a stronger-than-anticipated winter storm. Needless to say, many of the passengers were unexpectedly delayed and displaced among various airports across the U.S. and across the world. I say Trent Vineyard, it was unexpected, particularly uh, because the, it, what caught people off guard was not so much the fact that they were grounded, but rather and instead how long they were grounded. Because, beloved, they were grounded for days. And to add insult to injury, most were not even given a voucher to eat. They were not even given accommodations to lay their head. Instead, they had to sit there and watch other folk from other airlines take off to their various destinations while they were forced to sit there and remain displaced and delayed. I don't have to tell you, the people were ticked. And they took to Twitter and to social media and various parts of multimedia to let the world know how mad they were. And I don't have time to tell you everything that they said, but let me just summarize it like this. They basically said, you had one job to help me transition from where I was to where I am destined to be, to be. But get this, even after several days removed from what happened in Denver, there was still evidence that a debacle had occurred. For not only were people displaced, but their baggage was displaced and misplaced as well. Why? Because the company did not have the crew nor the capacity to handle the, the enormity of the circumstance. And so littered throughout the airport was a sea of baggage, so much so that even the passengers could not see what the individual, they could not even detect or discern what individual pieces of baggage belonged to each of them. As fate would have it, when Frontier finally announced that their flights and their planes were ready to take off, many passengers were faced with a choice. Do I stay here among the baggage? Or do I make a conscious decision to board my flight to reach my destination? In other words, Vineyard, in order to get to where they needed to go, 
they had to make a decision of whether or not they were ready to leave their baggage behind. Are you with me? The Lord sent me on divine assignment to share with somebody that you may have never flown Frontier Airlines. But in 2017, there are some new frontiers that God wants you to experience. And there's some new terrain that he wants you to travel. And there's a new altitude by which God wants you to operate. But in order to get to where God wants you to go, then you're going to have to leave some baggage behind. Do I have a witness in this place? Baggage. All of us carry some type of baggage from time to time. Chances are, in the first weeks of this year, a lot of us, even right now in the month of January, have found ourselves picking up baggage. Perhaps some of us even carried baggage here in the house tonight, whether that might be uh, the baggage of rejection or the baggage of a divorce or a disjointed relationship. Others are carrying the baggage of a broken heart, the baggage of bereavement or loneliness or anxiety or, or perhaps even physical or financial strain. You name it, all of us have had to carry baggage from time to time. All of us from the stage to the back door have had to carry baggage. But hear me, there is a danger in having too much baggage. Because when you have too much baggage, it's difficult to manage. Manage what, preacher? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> when you have too much baggage, it's difficult to manage going where God wants you to go and doing what God wants you to do and being who God wants you to be. And I think I ought to tell you, it's a sad sight to see someone who is called by God but cannot walk in the purpose from God because they're carrying around or they're hanging around too much baggage. That's why I told you there's a danger in carrying too much baggage or having too much baggage around you. And the danger of having too much baggage around you is it can block you from the destiny that God has for you. You don't have to believe me. All you got to do is ask a brother in the Bible by the name of Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel in the Bible, and he is arguably one of the saddest stories and tragic tales in all of Scripture. Because of the confinements of time, I don't have time to tell you all about Saul, but just let me, let me give you a quick summary. To understand Saul, you have to go back to Israel when they entered the Promised Land. But when they entered the Promised Land, they were not a unified nation, but rather they were a confederacy of familial tribal units who were the descendants of Jacob. But when they come to the Promised Land, they are ruled by a trifold leadership of judges and prophets and priests. Some of you biblical scholars here tonight may remember that in the time of Judges, the Bible says that people did everything that was right in their own eyes. It was a time, Trent Vineyard, of scrupulous morals. And there was a perceived weakness among the leadership perpetuating from generation to generation. As time passes on, the children of Israel become increasingly dissatisfied with their leadership. But not only are they dissatisfied with their leadership, but they're also under duress. Because when you read earlier in chapter 10, around verse 5, what you will discover is that somewhere in the area, there is the presence of a Philistine outpost. And the Philistines were enemies of the Israelites. So the presence of a Philistine outpost suggested an encroachment by the enemy. In other words, Israel was under imminent attack. And because they were under duress and because they were dissatisfied with, with their leadership, Israel said, we got to do something to turn this thing around. 
So they looked towards other nations around them to see how they operated. So they looked at the Hittites and the Amorites and the Amalekites and the Midianites and all these nations they noticed had a king. This led Israel and their culture to reason in their mind that maybe if we had a king, the king could set things in order. Maybe if we had a king, that the king could defend us against attack. And so they went to the prophet Samuel, and they demanded the king. Now, now when Samuel tells God about their demands, God is uh, displeased with their requests. He's displeased and he is disappointed because they are requesting a monarch. And in their culture, it indicates that they have some selective amnesia. And they have forgotten it was the Lord. King Jesus, who had brought them through this far up to this place. God said, let me remind you that I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. Let me remind you that I'm the one that delivered you from the oppressive plight of Pharaoh to make, who made you make bricks without straw. God says, let me remind you that I'm the one that led you by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Let me remind you that I'm the one who blew the breath uh, and made the walls of the Red Sea stand at attention. Let me remind you that I am the one that fed you with manna from heaven when you were hungry and gave you water from a rock in a dry land. Let me remind you how far I have brought you. All I'm trying to do is remind somebody tonight that the only reason why we're here tonight and the only reason why we're here today is because of the grace of God. Do I have company in their house? Is there anybody here that can say it was his grace and mercy that brought me through and I'm living this moment because of the grace of God? God had brought them from a mighty long way. In spite of that, Israel demands a king. The record is that God relents, grants them their request. He tells the prophet Samuel, tomorrow I'm going to bring the king of Israel into your midst. Sure enough, God orchestrates the affairs, navigates the circumstances of Saul. And lo and behold, Saul knocks on Samuel's door. The Lord speaks to Samuel and he says, that's the one that's going to be king. Samuel pulls Saul aside, starts telling him of his destiny. And he says to him, you will no longer live average and mediocre, but God has an assignment on you for greatness. And you will be the first king of Israel. But you are the one who I have destined to lead Israel against the Philistines. You will rise to a level where nobody else and your circle has, has risen. You are going to do some amazing things. And the way you're going to know this you're going to prophesy, and you're going to become king. Fast forward to our text tonight. In chapter 10, Samuel has gathered all the children of Israel and Mizpah to elect the king whom God has selected. And they get there, they begin to cast lots. The lot falls on the tribe of Benjamin, falls on the house of Matri, falls on the, on the house of Kish, and Saul was confirmed to become king. It's a great moment. It's about to be a great celebration. So if you can close your mind's eye for a moment and imagine the conference is getting ready to begin. The schedule has been made. The diaries have been filled out. The travel arrangements have been confirmed. All the programs have been prepared. Have been prepared. The chocolates have been passed out. The programs have been prepared. The church has been cleaned. And they gather all at the Trent Vineyard on a Sunday night, the first day of the week, to celebrate Saul's coronation as a king. Someone asks, where is Saul? 
Much to their shock and chagrin, he's hiding among the baggage. Now, Pastor Mumford, the, the Bible does not say what, these, what this type of baggage was. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for, for baggage could have meant a number of things. It could have meant weapons or supplies or even furniture. We don't know what these bags were. But what we do know is that Saul was hiding among them. Which begs the question tonight, why was he hiding? Or better yet, what was he wrestling with? Maybe Saul, I want to suggest sagaciously tonight that some of the same things that many of us wrestle with were the things that Saul was wrestling with when God calls us to new heights and new opportunities and new possibilities. Because if we're honest, I don't care how saved and sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit we are. I don't care how long we've been coming to church. I don't care what your title is, what your culture is, what your ethnicity is. I don't care about any of those things on tonight. All of us wrestle with our own stuff. All of us have baggage that we carry. And so I wanted to ask a question of the text tonight. What was Saul's stuff? Oh, but yet, what was his baggage? Let me give you three alliterative ideas, and I'll be out of your way. First of all, I believe that the reason Saul was wrestling, the reason why he's hiding, first of all, is because Saul is questioning the possibilities. Watch this. When Samuel tells Saul he's going to be king, he says to him, there are two things that are going to happen. He says, you are going to prophesy, and you're going to become a king. Now, at this point, he's never been a prophet. And of course, by this point, he's never been a king. But Samuel tells him he's going to be a prophet and he's going to be a king. When you keep reading in chapter 10, sure enough, one day Saul is going up on a hill and a group of prophets are on their way down. The Bible says he begins to prophesy with them. And around, uh, I believe it's verse 11 of chapter 10, the people say, is this not the son of Kish? And is Saul now among the prophets? And so we see Saul who is fulfilling that part of his destiny. When he gets to Mizpah and he's supposed to be king, he's hiding. Stay with me. If he's never been a prophet and he's never been a king, why would he willingly prophesy but be hesitant to be a king? Why would he do that? The reason I believe he does this is because when he prophesies, He's able to prophesy because he sees other men prophesying around him. And he has no difficulty believing what he's seen other folk do. But when it's time to become king, there's never been a king that he's seen. There's never been a man who has done what he's been called to do. And so like many of us, Saul limits what he tries to do based on what he's seen other folk do. See, it's easy to walk in somebody else's footsteps. But at some point on the road to greatness, sometimes God gives a prophetic word for you. Sometimes God speaks to your spirit and it gives you a possibility in your mind that has no precedence. And he says, you've got to be the first person in your family. You've got to be the first person in your generation to be able to rise up and accept the baton of your day. He says, you've got to be the first person in your church and in your community to do what God has called you to do. 
my word to somebody today is when God calls you to do something, do not let the experience of others set limitations on you or make you feel that you can't do it. I mean, just because they couldn't doesn't mean you can't. Just because they wouldn't doesn't mean you won't. And just because they fail does not mean you will not succeed because I am a living witness that if God puts the door in front of you, that the God that I serve will make a way. If God gives you a vision, the God that I serve will provide provision. If God puts the door in front of you, he will make a way for you to walk through it. I don't have any biological children, but I do have God's children. I remember a few years ago when my goddaughter and her parents came to my home city, Columbus, Ohio, for a conference. And they were staying at the conference hotel. So I picked them up at the conference hotel, and I drove them around the city of Columbus, and I made sure they went shopping, and I made sure they had something to eat. When we got back to the hotel, parked in front of the hotel, my goddaughter jumped out of the car. She ran to the door of the hotel, and she was trying to push the door of the hotel, but she couldn't open it. She wasn't strong enough. She's pushing, but uh, in spite of her efforts, she can't open the door because the door is too heavy. And so she turns around to us. We're making our way to the hotel. And so she looks at me and she says, God, Daddy, I need for you to open the door. I had taken them shopping, and so I had my, my hands were full with bags. And I said, baby girl, don't go to that door. Go to the middle and go to the revolving door. So my goddaughter goes to the middle towards the revolving door, and I can see her reasoning in her mind. Her, her, her wheels are churning. And she begins to say, well, you know what? If I can't open that door, what makes you think that I can open this revolving door? So she looks back at me, and I said, baby, just keep walking. She continues to walk, and she gets a little bit closer to the revolving door, and much to her surprise, the door starts to move by itself. She looked over at me, and she said, God, Daddy, well, how did that happen? And so I decided to break it down to her. I decided to explain it to her, and I said, baby girl, there is a sensor over the door that senses you walking towards the door. And when it sees you walking towards the door, then the sensor opens the door. Come here this morning, this night. Come here tonight. What I'm trying to share with you is that we serve a God who sits high and he looks low. And he sees you and I being able to make our way to the door. And because God sees us making our way to the door, the God that we serve has the power to open the door and open doors for you that you cannot open by yourself. He is a door-opening God. He's questioning the possibilities. Can I give you number two? Not only is he questioning the possibilities, but secondly, I believe he's hiding because he believes that he is unqualified for the position. Because remember now, I told you that Israel is under duress. Meaning this, if Saul was, Saul was coming to be king during a time when the Philistines are threatening to be under attack, that would suggest that Israel is in need of a king who's a warrior and knows how to protect his people from the enemy that's been encroaching and is on the way. The problem with Saul is that there's nothing on his resume that says he's a warrior. In fact, when you read his dossier, he's never been in a fight. I mean, at least his successor, David, we know, when he got examined, had been in a fight when he got ready to fight Goliath. David got ready to fight Goliath. You remember the story David said, I got this slingshot. And I took this slingshot and I struck down a lion. 
And I took the same slingshot and I struck down a bear. And the same God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and delivered me from the paw of the bear is the same God who would deliver me from the hand of this giant. We all know how that turned out. But Saul has never been in a fight. I mean, he's not even throwing a rock at a dog. The only thing we know about Saul is that he's tall and he's handsome. I think I ought to pause parenthetically <laughs> and let you know what it is a blessing to be tall, dark, and handsome. Bless his name. <laughs> but how many of you know beauty can be fleeting and good looks can only get you so far? And Saul knows being tall and handsome will not deliver Israel from the Philistines. It's like many people. Saul has limited his ability to other people's perception of his giftedness. He has trouble believing he can do something that requires a skill set that nobody else has ever told him he has. Nobody ever called him a warrior or said he was strong. All he ever heard somebody say is that you look good. This battle doesn't have anything to do with how you look. So like many people in life, he's afraid of being exposed, of being inadequate. So he does not step up to the possibility because he wonders within himself, do I really have what it takes? In his quiet, meditative moments, when he's up in his bedroom and he's having these doubts in his mind, and it seems as though he gets to his pillow and he, he, his pillow becomes his handkerchief and tears begin to come down his eyes and, and shake hands at his chin. Saul begins to wonder in his heart, do I really have the competency and the character and even the catalytic leadership to lead in this circumstance? Is God really calling for me to be a person to step up in this generation? Because there's nothing in my past that suggests otherwise. In other words, my beloved, the reason why Saul hides is not just because he questions the possibilities and not just because he's unqualified for the position, but finally, I believe that Saul hides behind the baggage because I believe that Saul is quarantined by his past. And hear me, there is one thing that will hold you back. One thing that will hold you back is when you keep holding on to the baggage of your past. The Bible says when it comes time for Saul to be king, that Saul begins to give excuses why he can't be king. He says, I can't be king because I come from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest tribe. I come from the clan of Matri, which is the smallest clan. And I come from the house of Kish, which is the poorest house. Let me say it for you again. He says, the reason why I can't be king is because I've got some Benjamin in my background. I've got some Matri in my DNA. And I've got some Kish on my resume. He says, I can't be king. He says, I have some things in my past that I'm not proud of. I can't be king because I've messed up in so many ways. If the truth be told, I've been in some wrong places at the wrong time with the wrong people doing the wrong thing. He says, you don't understand. There are folk in my city who know about me. There are some people who have some dirt on me. My name is all over the internet, and if I step out here, they're going to remind me how I had some missteps and some mistakes, how I had some heartaches and some hardships, how I had some bumps and some bruises. They will remind me 
of all the things that I did and all the areas in which I have failed, I am not who you think I am. But here is the good news of God. The very thing that you think disqualifies you makes you exactly the one who God is looking for. Saul says, I can't be king because I've got some Benjamin and Matri and Kish in my background. But the Bible says that when they get to Mizpah and they cast lots, the lot falls on Benjamin and the lot falls on Matri and the lot falls on Kish. Okay, you missed it. He says, I can't do it because of Benjamin, Matri, and Kish. But when the Lord says what he's looking for, he says, I need someone with some Benjamin in, my, in their background. I need somebody who's lived through some Matri. I need someone who can handle some Kish. Because hear me tonight, the very thing that you think disqualifies you is what makes you what God is looking for. Okay, okay, okay. Let me see if I can close this out. Uh, every now and again, I like to cook. Uh, now, 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 my wife does most of the cooking in my home, but, but every now and again, y'all, the Holy Spirit gives me the urge to cook. Now, now, I'm not as versatile of a cook as my wife is, but I can tell you this. Whatever I like to eat, I like to cook. So let me tell you something. I can uh, make some macaroni and cheese that is so awesome you would swear that the Holy Spirit anointed me to do it. You know, I can, I can make some pork loin that is so succulent, you just know that the Spirit of God was all on me. <laughs> Every now and again, I get the urge to cook. I remember back in college in Atlanta, Georgia, I wanted to fry some chicken. I had never fried any chicken. And I really like fried chicken, so I called my grandmother. My grandmother at the time was the best fried chicken fryer I ever knew. <laughs> Let me tell you now, you've got to be careful who you ask to make fried chicken. I'm not talking about that KFC stuff. I'm talking about some real fried, fried chicken because back in the, I don't know how it is in England, but back in the United States, everybody doesn't know how to fry their chicken. So when they fry chicken and they, sometimes they send it to my office, the first question I ask is who made it? Because everybody doesn't know how to fry their chicken. So I called my grandma and I said to her, I need you to show me how to fry some chicken. She said, you're in college, you're away from home, so let me just tell you over the phone. She said, son, go down to the store. Get you some fried chicken pieces. Get you some legs and some thighs and some wings. She said, don't get that skinless stuff because that won't fry right. She said, get you some legs, some thighs, and some wings. She said, I want you to take that chicken home and I want you to clean it because, you know, chickens are nasty animals and everybody does not clean their chicken. And she said, I want you to get some tweezers, and I want you to get some scissors, and I want you to pluck the chicken. Because one of the worst things to have is some fried chicken with a side of fried feathers. So make sure that you go ahead and you, and you go ahead and you make sure that you pluck the feathers of the chicken. And she said, then, after you do that, put some seasoning on the chicken. Don't need a lot. Just need some salt, some pepper, a little bit of paprika. Just put some seasoning on the chicken, then get you a bag of flour. And make sure you put some seasoning in the flour because if the seasoning falls off the chicken, you'll catch it in the flour. And she said, make sure that you take that chicken then, and after you've put the chicken in the flour in that sense, and you, and you put it in some oil and get you some oil and put it in a skillet. And once you get a chance to do that, make sure that you turn the heat down because you don't want the chicken to be able to fry too fast because it'll be brown on the inside and red on the inside. So make sure you do that. 
And after you do that, make sure you turn the, make sure you turn the, the, the oil down. And, and, and at that point, the chicken will be done. So I did. You all, what my grandmother said, I went on to the store. Went on and got me some fried chicken pieces. I got some legs. I got some thighs. I got some wings. And I began to take the chicken. I began to soak the chicken. I soaked the chicken. After I soaked the chicken, I went ahead and I, put to, and I, and I plucked the chicken. I all the twigs, got the tweezers, got the scissors, I did all of that. And I put some a seasoning on the chicken, and I got some flour, and I put some seasoning in the flour, because you know what, if a seasoning falls off the chicken, you'll catch it in the flour. And I went ahead, and I, went, I put the chicken in the oil, in the skillet, and I did all of that, like my grandmother told me, but the chicken just did not turn out right. So I said, I called my grandmother, and I said, the chicken, grandma, didn't turn out right, and she said, well, you know what, when you come home, uh, let's make sure that we do it together. So I said, okay, my grandmother was a great leader, and so I went over to her home, and we got the fried chicken pieces. We got the fried chicken pieces, and we, and we soaked the chicken, we cleaned the chicken, and we made sure we plucked the chicken, and we did all those things. We put some seasoning in the chicken, we got some oil, and did all those type of things. And my grandmother said, okay, now it's time for you to go over and get the skillet. You all, I got the finest skillet that my grandmother had in the kitchen. I reached down to the cabinet, got this finest skillet. It was a beautiful skillet. I mean, you could see your face in the skillet. It was a beautiful skillet. My grandmother looked at me and said, son, what is that? I said, it's the cutest skillet that I could find in the house. She looked at me and she said, son, you can't use that skillet because I can't use that skillet because I, that skillet has, is too cute. That skillet is too pretty. That skillet has never been scratched. That skillet has never been burned. That skillet has never been through anything. You can't use that skillet. And she reached down in the cabinet and she said, you've got to get this black, cast iron, handed down, been through the fire, been scratched and scorned skillet because that's the one that I can use. All I'm trying to tell you all tonight is the person that God can use that I'm speaking to right now is a person who has been through something, who does not mind sharing and testifying that when you go through the fire, that God will be with you. And when you go through the flood, the flood will not overtake you. And I can always tell the people who, who have been through something because they are the type of people who do not care who's around them when they think about the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for them, their soul will cry out hallelujah and they will thank God for, for saving them. Is there anybody here tonight before I take my seat that does not mind giving God some praise that does not mind standing up and saying God is so good. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own and because of what God has brought me through, I know that God can use me. My grandmother's favorite message or song was if I never had a problem, how would I know that God could solve them? How would I know what faith in his word could do. But through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus, and I've learned to trust in his word. Hear me tonight. God is no shorter than his word. I preach to you tonight from the Old Testament. But if I was preaching from the New Testament, I would use this verse. I am forgetting those things which are behind and I'm reaching for those things which are before me. I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in order to press towards the mark, it means that you have to leave your baggage behind. All of us carry some type of baggage. And I sense in my spirit 
that there's somebody here tonight and you've heard this message and you are carrying some baggage. You're carrying the baggage that's been weighing you down. And nobody may know the baggage that you're carrying in this house. You know how to sing the songs. You know how to raise your hands. You know how to talk all of the church vernacular. But the reality is, you know, and God knows that you're carrying baggage. So preacher, if I'm carrying baggage tonight, what do I do? The Bible says you've got to lay aside every weight. And the sin that so easily slows you down. The sin of your past. The sin of your present. The sins even of your future because temptation is real. You've got to lay it aside and you've got to look to Jesus. And that's what I want to do tonight. I want to give us an opportunity to look to Jesus in a fresh way. So if you're physically able to do it, would you please stand? Would you please stand? And we want to take some time, some intentional time to look to Jesus. Those people on Frontier Airlines had to make a conscious decision. And likewise tonight, there's a conscious decision that somebody, some people need to make here as well. And let me share this with you. Though your decision may be personal, it is not private. You have to make a public declaration. Jesus says, if you will be ashamed of me before men and women, I will be ashamed of you in heaven on high. And so tonight, my challenge as we bring Pastor Debbie up, is to simply ask you not to play hide and seek with God. But when the call is made, come out, come out wherever you are and leave your baggage behind and step into the destiny and the heights and the vistas that God has ordained for you. God never wastes a hurt. There's not a tear that you've cried in your midnight hour that he's not counting. There's not a cry that he has not heard. And he has not brought you through what he's brought you through for happenstance. He's brought you here for this moment. It's your day, it's your hour, it's your moment, and it's your choice. What are you going to do when you've heard the words of Jesus Christ? Today, you hear his voice. Harden not your heart, leave your baggage.